Well, good morning, everybody. So we came out of the Christmas series from Majesty to Manger. Wasn't that a cool series? Uh, just the Lord really put that together, and it was an awesome deal. And now we're kicking back into our Mark series uh, this morning, the Gospel of Immediacy. And the connection and transition between the two series is astonishing. Um, I, I was just struck by it. And the Christmas series, uh, if you remember, we did the the issue of motive. Why did God come? What was the motive behind His coming? And uh, we pointed out in John 3.16, that very famous verse, For God so loved. What was behind the heart of everything He did is that He loves us and that He cares for us. That He gave His only Son the best that He had, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So there was an avenue, a way through The overwhelming theme is that God loves us. God gave us His absolute best when He gave us Jesus by giving us Himself. And His thoughts are towards us. We don't often think of that. When we go through a week, uh, it might be neutral, or if I do something bad, God's mad at me. But we don't think of God's thoughts being towards us. And I want to suggest that's a great little discipline thing to wake up in the morning and remind yourself, God's thoughts are towards me today. He's thinking about me, and He has things for me to do, and I can connect with that. And the two series now do an incredible baton pass from the theme of, so we went in the Christmas series from how much God loves us. Now we're going in the Mark series, how much we should love God. And this morning we're going to look at the greatest commandment that uh, Jesus talks about. And I just want to say, if you're impressed with the timing and synchronization of all this, just know it was the Holy Spirit and not some clever maneuvering by your pastor. I didn't even see how they came together until I started putting this together. So uh, know that, all right? Uh, We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 12. And uh, uh, the Pharisees and the leaders, just to set the table, they've been in a series of debates. We call them arguments, right? They are trying to get Jesus. They're trying to trap him in a bunch of riddles and uh, things that uh, hopefully Jesus will get stuck, he'll embarrass himself and get disqualified in front of the crowd. And it's in this setting that we read today. So uh, reading from Mark chapter 12, reading verses 28 to 34, and it goes like this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. This is the other leaders because Jesus had shut them down and now they didn't know what to do. And seeing that he had answered them well, he asked, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, and he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him, any more questions. It's a powerful 
little vignette in the gospel. Let's pray this morning, all right, and ask the Lord to be among us. Father in heaven, we just spent the last week expressing our love to you and for each other in the giving of gifts. We call it Christmas. And and then again, on Christmas Eve, we spent time pondering the enormity of your coming to us. The throne became a manger, a gift. You became a baby. And, And you've expressed your heart towards us. And today, we'll get a chance to see what your hope is for our hearts towards you. And we recognize that in this, there are things of the mind and things of your spirit. We pray that both would be engaged this morning, that you'd find our response to you as delightful as we've found your response to us. Help us lean in close this morning, Lord, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let's take a look and pull this apart a little bit before we get to the testimony. One of the scribes came up and hearing them disputing with one another and seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important? So remember, this is all taking place in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles. This is where all the people have gathered and there's the confrontation on the steps and they're talking and this scribe comes up, watches the whole thing, sees the dispute, sees them, uh, his fellow scribes and teachers in confusion. And so he stops and he looks at Jesus and says, teacher... What's the most important commandment? The questioning here is different. He's not out to get Jesus. This is an honest appeal. Um, This scribe sees that he's answered them well, and, and his response to Jesus is a clear and a sincere one. He's saying out of this whole dialogue, hey, what's the most important law? What's the most important commandment? The context for this discussion is entirely Jewish, right? Uh, we don't aren't Jewish, so let me take us back a little bit. Uh, if you look up in commentaries, I, I use the Expositor's Bible Commentary. If you look up, they'll tell you that the rabbis had gone through the Old Testament law and found 613 statutes for the law. Of that, 365 were negative, things you shouldn't do, and 248 were positive, things you should do. If you think about that and you were to try and keep all 613 of those laws, that would be rather burdensome, right? We're in an era of grace, and so we don't actually think like that. But they face tremendous pressure that way. And the commentary goes to point out that uh, great effort and uh, thought had been expended on trying to differentiate between the heavy or the important ones of the law and then the more light or little ones, kind of like, well, if you don't do that one, it's not that big a deal, right, kind of thing. And so they wrestled with that. And, um, and then also great effort and thought was put into formulating great principles off of those laws to which the rest of the law could be deduced. So kind of this synthesis of kind of a key statement that would summarize the whole thing up. An example is given by the great Rabbi Hillel, Uh, who was challenged by a Gentile, and the Gentile came up to him and said, I will become a convert if you can teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. And obviously the implications there is the Jewish law is so burdensome and so layered that that isn't even possible for that to happen. Uh, And Hillel said to him uh, very famously, what you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. He said, this is the whole law. The rest is commentary. I thought that was a brilliant answer, right? 
The Expositor's Bible Commentary points out that this came out of really a works righteousness uh, understanding of the law and keeping the commandments. In other words, I'm right because I do right things. Right? And we struggle with that because there's a certain element. If you're right in your heart, you'll do right things. But that, that's a grace learning today. I'm right in my heart, therefore I do right things. Not I'm going to do right things so that I can be right. Or I'm right because I myself am doing them, therefore I'm a good person and I've earned righteousness in front of God because I've been a good kid. Right? Uh, this is, no, I'm a good person because God's made me good and then I can make. And so they wrestled with this uh, works righteousness thing in the keeping of the commandments. Jesus, as always, goes beyond this in his response to this scribe. And he says this. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now Jesus does something really interesting here because the scribe had asked which law was the most important and Jesus gives them two and talks about it as one. Notice in the response, he quotes two passages. The first one he's quoting from is directly out of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And then the second one is Leviticus 19.18. All of Leviticus 19 is a chapter devoted to this topic of loving your neighbor, but it's synthesized by verse 18 at the end. The first quote is what's known as the great Shema. Shema literally means to hear, right? And in this case, hear, O Israel. And the commentary points out that every pious Jew began their day with this confession of faith, and it was recited every morning and every evening. So if you were a good Jew, that's what you did in the morning, is you, O hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you went through the repetition of that. And it was to remind you to keep in front of you the Lord as the result and effort of the day, and at the end of the day to remind you that the Lord had been with you through the day. And so it was something, when Jesus quoted that, they knew exactly where he was quoting from. If we look at this, just pull it up here. The emphasis here, if you look, you'll notice uh, two things. One, it emphasizes the unity of God. The Lord our God is one, right? Uh, We have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three personalities, one God. We don't, that's a mystery to us, right? Three and one, one and three. Uh, Three expressions, one God. But the idea is that if you look here, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God. Notice it doesn't say obey. It doesn't say perform. It doesn't say all these other words we would use. What it says is we shall love the Lord our God. In other words, we have to grow in a capacity to love Him. God is to be loved totally and completely because He and He alone is God and He's made a covenant of love with His people. In this covenant that God is... uh, showing us up here, he gives himself totally in love to his people. Therefore, he expects his people to give themselves totally, soul, mind, body, strength, in love to him. And this makes sense to us, right? Uh, Married people, go back to when you were dating. Remember when you were in like a lot and you decided to get engaged and you had to pop that famous question, right? And will you marry me? And in that, you usually said, I love you. 
right? When you said that, all of who you were was wrapped up in that question. That wasn't half of you. It wasn't 66.6%. That's why you were so nervous. That's why you sweated. And that's why you were hoping the answer would be yes. And if the answer is no, you were devastated because all of you was put into that question, right? If you tell somebody you love them and they come back and go, yeah, well, I love you about half as much. How well would that go? Just think about it. it wouldn't that just wham? I mean, we laugh because it's so awkward um, and clumsy because if that actually happened to you, you'd be a wreck, right? If you give yourself to someone, you expect the same kind of reciprocal response back. Relationships have to be two things. Number one, okay, they have to be um, reciprocal. They have to, in other words, both parties have to agree to the relationship. Uh, some of you probably in your teen years really, really, really liked somebody and they really, really, really didn't like you back. Okay? It was a one-sided affair that went nowhere. And to your dismay, it never did. Right? Um, it, it, we understand that. Right? So, uh, and then the second thing is, so relationships have to be reciprocal, but they also have to be progressive. That means they have to move. They take on a life of their own. And some of you may have had the experience where uh, you went from being good friends to interest, romantic interest, like, whoa, this is... And then, you've ever heard that famous phrase, let's just go back to being friends. Okay? That does not work, right? That is classic language for, I want out of this relationship, but I don't have a good way to say it, so let's go back to the friends category. Okay? And the reason for that is you can't go back once you've gone forward. It's just really hard and impossible to do that. And so that's, you know, if you watch all the Hallmark, that's what that's all about. I've been educated by Hallmark, right? But God has given himself totally to us. So what he's looking for is the same kind of wholehearted response back towards him. And that's why we talk about love in this church and learning and growing in our capacity to love because as we go further, we should love deeper. Jesus then takes this idea, so this idea of love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and then he ties it, connects it uh, to Leviticus 19 and shows that love of neighbor is just a natural extension. Just it, 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 It's the next step um, and logical outcome of this commandment. Leviticus 19 says this. Now, again, Leviticus, the chapter, the whole chapter talks about this, but we'll just pull verse 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason... And by the way, we could just do a whole message on that, right? You shall not hate your brother from your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus ties these two commandments together so that they cannot be separated. As for who is our neighbor, Leviticus 19 uh, talked about fellow Israelites or sojourners. Uh, devout Jews would say it was only Jewish people, but you'll find it's a much, God gives a much broader category in the Old Testament for uh, sojourners and people who came in to worship Israel's God. 
And so uh, that, that's the context there. But this gets expanded by Jesus. There's two parables that Jesus tells. One is of the prodigal son. Right. And uh, right. And actually, it should be the two prodigal sons, because there was the son who ran away, but there was a son who stayed at home and he wasn't any better than the son who ran away. Just different symptoms. Right. And then Jesus wraps us all together then with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the prodigal son is about God's love for us. The Good Samaritan is about loving your neighbor as God has loved you. The Apostle John takes this even further Uh, in his epistle in 1 John, when he says this, So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love... Now, we don't use the word abide, right? Uh, But abide means dwell together. Okay, So whoever dwells in love dwells in God, and God dwells in him or abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. What this is talking about is it's really easy to come out of a fear-based orientation, right? Like, so if you're a teenager, your parents are the authorities, you, you don't always respond to them in love, right? Sometimes it's more in fear, because they're the authority, right? And it's easy to do that with God. So it's possible for a person to live their entire Christian life based out of fear. And that's not the right motive. Fear and love can produce sometimes the same results, but not for the long haul. Eventually, fear is going to buckle and it won't be, have the staying power to continue the way love does. And so we have to grow in our capacity in love. This where it says, we've come to know and to believe in other translations, the word would be rely, right? To be, believe is to rely. So, for example, you came in this morning, you're sitting in that chair, and you are relying on that chair to hold your weight. You believed it would support you, so you sat down. It's the same kind of idea. We know and believe or rely on the love that God has for us. That word abide again, John loves that word, again, means to dwell together. And it makes a direct correlation between abiding together and love. And this is what gives us confidence on the day of judgment. We will know and love the one who's coming to get us. Right? Uh, If you haven't, I had a buddy that called me up this week, and I was best man in his wedding 40 years ago. And uh, his name is Bobby Lord. Interesting name, right? He's one of the guys that helped lead me to Christ. And uh, he called me up. We haven't talked in seven years. And as soon as he called and I, bang, we were right back on. Like we had never been separated. Why? Because we love each other. And I didn't, he didn't have to explain. Or it was Bobby and it was me. And we were right back where we were 40 years ago at the church in Green Bay, talking to his buddies who were just rocking for Jesus and just having the time of our lives. Right? It just popped. And that's what it's going to be like when you know the Lord and you love him. When he comes, you're going to know who he is. That's why we need to keep developing our love quotient and taking it farther because it gives us confidence as we draw close in the end times. This is what gives us that confidence. Then John goes on to say this, and this is even more important. He says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Uh, I... so if you want to understand this, I tend to operate this way in case you haven't realized that. I tend to be a fear-based person. 
And I tend to react in fear to most things, especially authority and especially God. And I have had to learn to rework that whole paradigm of my mind to a different category and respond in love to God instead of fear to God. It says, for fear has to do with punishment. Anybody relate to that, right? And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So the, the question on the table, a lot of times you, we bring up forgiveness, right, in church and, and that we have to forgive each other. And ah, why is that such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because Jesus tied them together and John points out to us why it's such a big deal. You can't say you love God whom you haven't seen when you don't love your brother who you have seen. It's a big deal because it's really easy to fool ourselves by saying we love God but hate or hold a grudge or are bitter towards the people around us. And we know what this is like. We experience this all the time, right? You're sitting there, you're thinking, you see somebody, right? And then you get that little from the Holy Spirit, right? You ever get, no, let that go. No, forgive them. No, just stop. Right? I don't want to. They're a donkey. Okay? And... Right? And then we marshal all our reasons before God why they're a gunky, and not only should we not like them, but God shouldn't like them either. And then God comes back and says, well, that's my son or my daughter. Oh. Well, I still don't like them. Well, I forgave you. Well, I know, but you had to. I mean, that's what you do. You're God. You have to do that. I'm me. I don't have to. Well, you say you love me. Well, I do. Well, then you should forgive me. Right? You ever have that dialogue? Right? You can tell I'm familiar with it. Right? <laughs> so Jesus ties these two things together and says, if you want to measure your capacity to love, love God with all your heart, and then tie it to how you love the people around you. Okay? And this is what the scribe who was asking Jesus a question was trying to hone in on. And indeed, uh, to Jesus' response, he replies, he gives a great reply. He says this, You are right, teacher, and you have truly said that he is one. Notice here, he doesn't use Yahweh, he uses he, because a proper Jew wouldn't use God's name. And there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This guy got it, so to speak. Okay? The others were had wrong motives, but this guy was listening. This guy was tuning in. And he got the question, and he was having a really honest debate, an honest inquiry with Jesus. And he realized that the issue wasn't outward conformity. It wasn't how you looked on the outside, and it wasn't the sacrifices you offered to God. God wasn't impressed with those. What he was impressed with was the heart side of it. It was rather to love him. And that love, true love, from the from the heart of God was greater than any sacrifice that could be offered for him or to him. And when he responds this way, Jesus comes back to this guy and says this is one of the great responses in the New Testament. When he saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, 
You are not far from the kingdom of God. <laughs> Just sends shivers down you, doesn't it? And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. That conversation was so raw and so real, they quit at that point. Jesus said and looked at him and said, You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. What was missing? What was missing for this guy? Because this guy had great knowledge and insight. And he was clear. He didn't have a twisted motive when he came to Jesus. But here's what was missing. He hadn't personally surrendered himself to Jesus yet. He did not say, and therefore, because of that, Jesus, I confess that you are the Messiah. He was literally standing probably three feet away from eternity. And wasn't there yet. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought about the fact that because you know Jesus, the Holy Spirit's in you, so the kingdom of God is in you, and as you go to school, and as you go shopping at the grocery store in your neighborhood, and as you walk into different businesses, and as you go to work, and people walk by you, they're literally walking by the kingdom of God, and they don't know it. Every week I watch hundreds go over to elevated sports, and they are within 50 feet of the kingdom of God, and they don't know it. We're standing right here. This guy was literally three feet away from Jesus. Think about that. And he's having this conversation with Jesus. Would he bow the knee to Jesus' claims about himself? We don't know. This is where the text is maddening. It doesn't tell us the rest of the story. Will this guy be in heaven or not? We don't know. But we're going to get a chance to see this story Uh, lived out today in a testimony of someone else who was also close to Jesus but had not yet bowed the knee and how that came about and happened. Zach is going to share like he did in first service and tell the story of what God has done recently in his life over the last year. So Zach. 